Amen. Stay standing. Uh, orange, yellow, purple stars. Y'all can head to Kid Town. Have a blast. And um, Treva, you're going to read for us this morning. And um, Randy, why don't you come on up? Randy Drawn, uh, some of you know. Uh, <laughs> you have to dodge the children on your way up here. Treva's going to read for us. Uh, from Colossians, and then Randy's going to be bringing the word. Uh, if you don't know Randy, this is Randy Drawn, everyone. He is, yes, some of you do. He's new here. Um, in many ways, uh, we should be encouraged. Uh, this is the fruit of uh, the Lord calling this guy to plant Midtown 20 years ago and me getting to go on that journey with him. Uh, and so to get to hear from him this morning, uh, he's my spiritual dad. Uh, I love him deeply. So I'm very, very happy uh, that you get to hear from him. So Treva, come read for us before I leave. Mm, Make me cry too. (laughs) We're in Colossians 2, verse 16 through 23. Therefore, do not let anyone judge you by what you eat or drink or with regard to a religious festival, a new moon celebration, or a Sabbath day. These are a shadow of the things that were to come. The reality, however, is found in Christ. Do not let anyone who delights in false humility and the worship of angels disqualify you. Such a person also goes into great detail about what they have seen. They are puffed up with idle notions by their unspiritual mind. They have lost connection with the head, from whom the whole body, supported and held together by its ligaments and sinews, grows as God causes it to grow. Since you died with Christ to the elemental spiritual forces of this world, why, as though you still belong to this world, do you submit to its rules? Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch these rules, which have to do with things that are all destined to perish with use, are based on merely human commands and teachings. Such regulations, indeed, have an appearance of wisdom with their self-imposed worship, their false humility, and their harsh treatment of the body, but they lack any value in restraining sensual indulgence. The word of the Lord. Would you pray with me? Lord, thank you for your word, and we pray uh, in claiming your promises by faith that when your word is read and taught that, Lord, you... Do things by your Holy Spirit that uh, we could not do on our own. And we anticipate that and long for that, but Lord, we resist it. Like we are stubborn people. And we pray that you would fight through our past stories, our traumas, our cynicism, our doubts, and you would rescue us from ourselves. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. You can have a seat. And hey, good morning, everybody. And I don't know which, which of these do I use? Like, like I, okay. This has like a a lock on the back. Is this where you keep the Holy Spirit? Is he like (laughs) locked up in there? Little dose of the ghost just unlocked the lock. Well, I uh, love being here, but I have to tell you that uh, I just preached over at Granny White and on the fourth row during the whole sermon, one of the faithful members of Midtown slept through my entire sermon and... uh, I'm feeling a little insecure right now. I kind of feel like I need to start juggling or something to get your attention. You're like, don't worry, really, I'm a good pastor. I can do this. Wow, all right. So if you feel the need to sleep, would you please just turn away? I couldn't stand it. This is uh, 
really an interesting passage of Scripture, and we're going to kind of walk our way through it, which may mean it's boring. But uh, it's interesting because Paul starts this whole passage of Scripture by saying, warning, don't let somebody take something away from you. And uh, when my kids were really little, uh, we have always had dogs, and our dogs were opportunists, and they understood the ways of a two-year-old. And they would follow our kids around, especially when there was food, because they knew that they could, it was easy pickings. Like, if I gave my kid a Cheeto, that Cheeto was in my dog's mouth before my kid had a chance to move it to their mouth. And we would say, hey, come on, don't let that dog take that from you, and teach them how to defend themselves against animals. And Paul is saying to you guys, hey, you got something, and you have an enemy that wants to snatch that out of your hand. And here's the crazy thing. When Jesus has you and you have Jesus, nobody can snatch you out of his hands. And the enemy knows that. But what he can do is convince you that you've been snatched out of his hands. He can convince you that you don't have what you already have. You're like the person who lost your car keys and you spend your whole day rummaging around your house looking for them and the whole time they were in your back pocket. That's what the enemy wants to do. And what Paul's been doing in the last, what, 34 verses of this book is he's been saying, hey, let me tell you, Christ came, Christ died for you. Christ is unbelievable. He is the Godhead. He is God in the flesh. And he came to the cross for you. And when he did that, he did some amazing things for you. He declared you holy. He declared you blameless. He, you are free of accusations. And then he went on to say this outrageous thing that God didn't just draw near to you. God drew in you, like Christ in you, the hope of glory, that you've become the temple of the Holy Spirit, that we are in God and God is in us, and this beautiful unfolding of this mystery that we get to live in now because now with Christ comes all this power and all this riches and all this hope and this incredible faith and a purpose for our lives. And we're not living our lives anymore like, like we're not connected to God. We're living our lives as those that are deeply connected, his family, and we live for, for a purpose. We've been gifted for that purpose. You look the way you look for your purpose. Like, great. Nobody's going to sleep yet. All right. <clears throat> so Paul said, hey, that's so dynamic. That's so rich. If you dare to believe that, you're going to live this life. He's calling us into, and he says, don't let, somebody, don't let them take it away from you. And who's taking it away from us? Listen to what he says. Don't. Let people judge you. So let's just think about this for a minute. Like Paul is saying that the threat to this thing that I have and living in it is people judging me. So how do I not let people judge me? Well, let's be honest first, okay? That every one of you are judging me right now. It's true. Every one of you have an opinion about what's happened so far. Every one of you had an opinion about my shirt. Some of you like my shoes. Some of you don't. Some of you are like, what, what's going on with this dude? Like, I don't get this. Where's Dave? Why is it Dave up there? <laughs> Some of you are judging this room. You're all you all are going to leave here this morning with opinions about the worship, about the sermon, about your interactions with other people. We are constantly judging all the time. I don't have the power to stop you from judging. I don't. And if I think that what Paul is calling me to do is to get you to stop judging, then I'm going to spend my whole life on this futile attempt to try to control and manipulate you. What Paul is saying is, don't put other people on the judgment seat of your life. 
They're going to judge you, but don't let their judgment now become the judgment seat. In other words, if they sit in this position to where I'm now going to live my life to please you. I'm going to find out what you want, and that's what I'm going to be. Whether it's peer pressure that tries to get me to be a certain way, look a certain way, dress a certain way, act a certain way, and I'm trying to live up to that, or whether it's the fear of man. Scripture talks a lot about the fear of man, that this fear of, do you like me? Do, am I enough? Uh, do I fit in? Like, how do, and I'm constantly afraid of, am I making the mark? <laughs> in Jeremiah chapter 17, the Lord talks about the fear of man, and he says, Cursed is the one who fears man, or puts their trust in man, who draws strength from mere flesh, whose heart turns away from the Lord. He's talking about when I put other people on that judgment throne and I start to fear them, and so I'm living to please them, I'm turning away from the Lord. And he says that person will be like a bush in the wasteland. They'll not see prosperity when it comes. Like, just think about that. When I live under the shadow of the fear of man, even when I succeed, I don't see it. It's never enough. No matter what I do, there's always more to do. No matter what I accomplish the next morning, i got to get up and accomplish it again. Even success doesn't get celebrated and embraced. He even says they will dwell in parched places of the desert in a salt land where no one lives. That sounds horrible. So uh, I became a Christian when I was like 18. And uh, when I reached 20, I decided, uh, or 21, when I got out of college, that I was going to go to seminary. And uh, you got to understand that when I, when I became a Christian, there wasn't much about my life that was Christian. Um, I mean, I look like somebody who just walked out of Woodstock, all right, the, and because I just walked out of Woodstock. And <laughs> so when I went to seminary, like, I didn't, you all know who John Calvin is? You know, the five points of Calvinism? I'd never heard of the dude, like, never. Like, I was staying in the John Calvin house on our seminary campus, and I was looking at it, and I met my roommate, and I go, who's this Calvin dude? Like, I've never even heard of this guy. So the first day of seminary, and this is not a lot, I, so... I get dressed, I'm going to class. And uh, so I got my best, like, T-shirt from my favorite band, you know, Blue Oyster Cult. And, and I, you know, my hair, I just got out of bed, I have long hair, and I got these killer jeans on. Like, they're white jeans, <laughs> bell-bottoms, all right? And they had blue stripes down them. And if you looked at him, you're like, I'm not sure, but I think maybe you just escaped from a really cool prison. Like, they were like prison pants and my sandals. And I'm flip-flopping over to school. And I walk in, and as soon as I open the door, I was like, you know, Sesame Street, one of these things is not like the other. Everybody's in blazers and slacks, and they're pressed. And they, okay, they had penny loafers on. Do you know what a penny loafer is? Okay, if you don't, you've been spared. Because they had pennies in their penny loafers. That you can buy penny loafers, and then you stick a penny in them because that means like you're like super preppy. Unless, of course, you have penny loafers on right now with pennies in them. I'm sorry. A few guys made jokes about, hey, dude, what prison did you guys get out of? You know, and wow, I don't even know where I, don't even, where I shop. I don't even see pants like that. And I'm like, thank God, you know. And <laughs> I'd like to tell you that I was like, well, you know, I am who I am. But I went home that day 
and I threw those jeans in the bottom of my closet, I never wore them again. Never. I was crushed. You know why I was crushed? And I was crushed for the same reason you get crushed when those kind of things happen in your life because God has made you beautiful. He's made, do you know the, one of the most beautiful things about the way God has made you because God has made us from him is that you were made to belong. In other words, you were made to be loved. There's, there is a hunger inside of you to belong and to be loved and to be a part of a community that when you walk in the room, it's like, thank God the party has started. You're here to where our lives are celebrated. And I could go through, if you've never read anything about Abraham Maslow's uh, hierarchy of human needs, he talks about the things that are most basic to our lives for us to live full and healthy lives. And he starts with the most basic. We need food. We need water. We need shelter. We need safety. We have to have safety to be, to be able to thrive. But you know, the third rung on his ladder, this, this pyramid of his needs, is belonging. Even in the secular world, it's saying one of the most basic needs in our lives is belonging. I want to read for you a quote. This may be where uh, this woman fell asleep in the last sermon, so hang with me, all right? Fight, fight for my own, self of, my own self-identity. But this is a quote from a woman who spent most of her life uh, studying shame and the impact it has on our lives. She's written a couple of books about it. Um, I'm not fully endorsing everything that Brene Brown has to say, but what she has to say about this, I think, really speaks powerfully to what we're talking about today. She says, when we let go of what other people think and own our story, we gain access to our worthiness. The feeling that we are enough just as we are, that we are worthy of love and belonging. When we spend a lifetime trying to distance ourselves from the parts of our lives that don't fit with who we think we're supposed to be, we stand outside our story and we hustle. We hustle for worthiness by constantly performing, perfecting, pleasing, and proving. Our sense of worthiness, that critical important piece that gives us access to love and belonging, it lives inside our story. She goes on to say, belonging is another topic that is essential to the human experience, but rarely discussed. Most of us use terms fitting in and belonging interchangeably. And like many of you, she goes, I'm really good at fitting in. We know exactly how to hustle for approval and acceptance. We know what to wear, what to talk about, what to make how to make people happy, what not to mention. We know how to chameleon our way through the day. But one of the biggest surprises in her research was learning that fitting in and belonging are not the same thing. In fact, fitting in gets in the way of belonging. Fitting in is about Assessing a situation and becoming who you need to be to be accepted. Belonging, on the other hand, doesn't quite require us to change who we are. It requires us to be who we are. She goes on to talk about, the, in her book, The Gift of Imperfection, of how when I commit myself to fitting in, I'm abandoning myself to live for the judge of the community over me that tells me what I need to be and I'm abandoning my own story. And it, it creates suffering and pain, and not just for me, but for you. 
And what Paul is saying in this passage is, be careful, church. Be careful who you put on the judge of your life to tell you what you need to be. He spent 34 verses saying that you belong to God for one reason and one reason and only, and that is because of what Jesus did for the cross, on the cross for us and through the power of his resurrection. That is it. You have nothing to add to the party. There is nothing that you can do to make the promises of God more true for you than what Christ has already done for you. There is nothing that you can do that makes you more his than what Christ has already done for you. It's not Jesus plus your good works. It's not Jesus plus your good deeds. It's not Jesus plus you becoming a super prayer. It's not Jesus plus you going into ministry. It's not Jesus plus anything. It's Jesus and Jesus only. That's it. That's the whole sermon. Some of you are going, thank God I didn't go to sleep. <laughs> you know, I read yesterday that the marathon uh, re- world record was broke. Did you hear about this? This guy ran a marathon. What is it, 26.3 miles? 0.2? Uh, in under two hours. He averaged for 26.2 miles, four minute and 38 second miles. So Jesus does it all for us. This illustration is not going to work, but go with me. (laughs) When I add anything to what Jesus does, it's like Jesus being a super marathoner, and he runs up to mile marker 25 and goes, you got the rest, now break the record. Okay, wait, 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 wait. He goes, you've got got to run a mile and a half in under five minutes. Hey, I did all this other stuff. That's all I'm asking you to do. Just run another mile in under five minutes. (laughs) I ain't going to make it. You might make it. Some of you might make it. If there's anything that I add to Jesus, I'm in trouble. And trust me, as a church, if there's anything that we add to Jesus, we're in trouble. So let's look. Paul talks about three groups of people in the church in Colossae that were adding things to Jesus. And he was challenging that idea. And it should challenge us. So verse 16. We're just going to kind of work our way through this passage. He says, therefore, let in... Do not let anyone judge you by what you eat or drink or with regard to a religious festival. What is he talking about? Or a new moon celebration. I thought that was a beer. New moon? Or is it blue moon? All right. Celebration. Or Sabbath day. Sabbath day? Come on. This is Sabbath, right? Okay. These are the shadows, shadows of the things that were to come. The reality, however, is found in Christ. So what Paul's addressing is there were a group of Jews that had become Christians, and they... In, in, their, in their Jewish faith, they were legalists. They had a lot of rules, a lot of regulations about their religion, and they weren't willing to let those things go. It was like, I, I, it's Jesus plus us being really good, right? It's like Jesus plus we keep all the rules, right? It's Jesus plus we can't do certain things. We can't eat certain things. We can't, right? See, a legalist is someone that wants to create a religion of human achievement. It argues that spirituality is based on Christ plus human works. It makes conformity to man-made rules the measure of spirituality. And what Paul says in Romans chapter 10, verse 4, that when Christ came, it was the end of the law of righteousness to everyone who believes. What does he mean by that? Well, what Paul is saying is all that stuff that we find in the Old Testament was a shadow of the reality. For example, the Passover, we don't celebrate Passover anymore. Passover was a Jewish celebration 
that was celebrating that the Lord had passed over the Israelites uh, when he was helping them escape from the Egyptians to come across the Red Sea. And so they would commemorate that event where God is the deliverer, he's the rescuer. And they would do that every year. But they would do that not just to remember, but they would also do that to look forward. Because at every Passover dinner, they would have an extra plate and a cup. And it was called the cup of Elijah. And nobody drank from that cup. It was the, nobody sat there. This was, this, this was a place that was set that there is one that is coming. Elijah, the great prophet who said he was returning, he's going to come back and one day take his place at the Passover plate, at the Passover dinner, and he will take his cup and it will declare that deliverance has come. Many theologians believe that when Jesus was instituting the Lord's Supper with his disciples, that was the cup that he picked up. And what he was declaring was what the Passover is pointing to has arrived. I am the Passover lamb. This is the blood that is spilt for the forgiveness of sins once and for all. The Passover is finished. It was a shadow. And you know what a shadow is. I mean, a shadow is the, the light that's cast on something that's real. So like when you go on a date with your wife, you don't, you don't spend all of your time with her shadow. Unless, of course, you need help, all right? Or maybe you're arguing with her. In that case, the shadow is awesome, all right? But the real is real. And Jesus is saying, I'm the real. And so what Paul is talking about here is those festivals were all pointing to something, but Jesus has arrived. How foolish of us to say Jesus is now here and he's fulfilled those things, so let's keep all those things. One of the things he mentions here is the Sabbath. Ooh. So I grew up in a church in the South in my hippie ways, uh, and I was constantly reminded that I don't fit in. And uh, because the church I went to, one, if you didn't go to church, it was a sin. God was not pleased with you if you're not here on Sunday morning. And when you showed up, you, you better show out. In other words, you better not show up in your flip-flops and your prison pants. Like, you need to dress up for Jesus. I mean, Jesus can go to the cross for you. The least you can do is clean up when you go to church. I'm not kidding you. In fact, I grew up in a church that actually believed that it, it is a sin for you to work on Sunday. And it is a sin for you to go out to eat on Sunday after church because you're making other people work. And on the Sabbath, that's a day of rest. Paul right now is saying the Sabbath is a shadow. What is he saying? Okay, stay with me. That's where some of you might go to sleep. You know, in Hebrews chapter 4, it says, it says something astounding. It says, Jesus is our Sabbath. In other words, what the Sabbath in, in the Jewish culture in the Old Testament represented a day of rest with all these rules and regulations of what you can't do to force you to stop and rest, that, that, that shadow now Jesus was bringing into reality. That, hey, we are now ushered into a Sabbath life. We're now ushered into a life of rest, a life of peace, a life of fellowship. I don't worship just on Sunday morning. I don't go to worship all my life is worship because Christ in me, the hope of glory. I'm being ushered into a reality, not the shadow. So when I gather together on Sunday morning, why am I coming here? I'm coming here because I need to be reminded 
This is a reality. This right here is a physical representation of a spiritual reality, that we're a part of a body, and that body is real. And Christ is with us. It reminds me to take worship into my Monday through Saturday. It reminds me that the peace that I'm experiencing when I'm here with the Lord and I slow down and I receive his presence with me is the same presence that goes with me in the car. He's ushering me into rest. So let me tell you why we don't like that. The judge. What's easier, to get up and go to church on Sunday morning or deal with why you're not at rest? What's easier, to lose five pounds or to learn to accept yourself at what you weigh right now? (laughs) Was that too personal? I'm sorry. (laughs) I'm serious. Why are you, if you've got Christ, what has robbed you of your rest? Who is sitting on the throne of your life that's throwing expectations on you that you can't stop? Why are you so busy? Why are you not taking care of your soul? Why is the garden of your heart full of weeds? Why aren't you taking time to cultivate this powerful, beautiful person that you are? Instead, you're spending your whole life spinning your wheels, trying to do something to where you can't rest at all. And when I talk about is your life at rest, that's a foreign concept. I'd much rather just go to church for an hour than get back to the busyness of my life. Why can't you stop? Like, who sits on that throne? Like, who is driving you to be so busy that you can't rest? Is it your parents' expectations? Uh Uh-oh. Wait a minute. Are there some parents here? Sorry. What do you think your parents want you to be? What your parents expect you to be? What do your parents expect you to do? Is it your friends? Is it the people that you work with that they get to define what success is? And so now you're living under the constant pressure that you've got to exceed all their expectations because somehow or another that's how you get your value? Or here's my favorite one. And this is, I, I love this person on the throne. Me. And I'm not talking about me. I'm talking about the phantom me. I got this phantom me. Phantom me gets up every morning at 5 o'clock and prays for an hour and then goes for a 10-mile run and then comes in and always has the right thing to say to his wife and his children. Nobody ever goes to sleep in phantom me sermons. Hey, you know? Phantom me is the one when I stand in front of the mirror and I go, ugh. Because I'm comparing the reality to a phantom me, and I don't measure up. That phantom me sits on the throne all the time, and Paul is saying, warning, danger. When you take that reality and you bring it into this culture, you you bring toxicity into faith. When you begin to think that Jesus, that your Father, your Heavenly Father, somehow is looking at you and going, ah, more. Second group. We're almost out of time. All right, here we go. Second group is the mystics. I love these guys. Do not let anyone who delights in false humility and the the worship of angels disqualify you. Such a person also goes into great detail about what they've seen. Remember, they worshiped angels. They're puffed up with idle notions by their unspiritual minds. They have lost connection with the head from whom the whole body, support and held together by its ligaments and sinews, grows as God calls it to grow. These are the mystics. This was the people from the Greek cultish culture that came into the church, and they didn't want to let go of kind of the whole mystical world. And I love this. Like, I'm a seven on the Enneagram, and I always want something different and new. Like, whatever we're doing, we can do it better. We can do it different. 
And this is that group of people that really believe that Jesus is not enough. You need Jesus plus some spectacular experience. So back in the early 80s, when I first become a believer, I hadn't cut my hair yet, um, I was in Houston with one of my mentors, and he goes, hey, man, there's this church here in town that I want us to go to. It should be interesting. And I'm like, great. And we went to, have you ever heard of Joel Olstein? His father started that church, John Olstein, and uh, was a fiery preacher, and we went to his dad's church. And it was this mega church, like thousands of people there. And at the end of the service, you may not know this, but the roots of that church is charismatic uh, beliefs. It's, you know, that's why this whole prosperity gospel is a part of what they do. And, uh, and at the end of the service, they had an altar call. And the altar call wasn't to receive Christ as your Savior. Get this. It was to receive the Holy Spirit in the second baptism. In other words, it was to receive the gift of tongues. And I was like, oh, yeah, I'm in. Let's go. I'm like, I'll take that. Like, why wouldn't you? And I've got nothing against the gift of tongues. I don't think they've ceased. Uh, and we could talk about that another time. If you speak in tongues, God bless you. Teach me. I want it. I do. I went down to get it, and I didn't get it. And, and they didn't give me a dose of the ghost. It just didn't happen. I'm like, what's wrong with me? And here's what they said. We're not sure you're a Christian. Because you haven't spoken in tongues. Well, first of all, let me just say, that's not biblical. It took me a while to realize that wasn't biblical. I went through the whole shame garden and picked all its roses and felt that I was not worthy. That was real. It was a very real thing for me. But I'm telling you that we can easily do that here. What's your experience? What's your latest experience? How's your small group going? Have you read that book yet? Oh, yeah, you got to get that book. Oh, you haven't read that book. What's wrong with you? Why haven't you read that book? We all read that book. It's so easy for us to put people on the throne of our lives to where we don't feel like we belong. Because it's Jesus plus me reading that book. Jesus plus me having that spiritual experience. Jesus plus me getting something out of church. Everybody else seems to get it. I don't seem to get it. Well, because of time, let's go to the third group which I like these guys too. It says, do not handle, do not taste, do not touch. These rules which do not have, are these rules which have to do with things that are all destined to perish with use are based on merely human commands and teaching. Such regulations indeed have the appearance of wisdom. They do, don't they? We'll talk about it. Such regulations indeed have an appearance of wisdom with their self-imposed worship, their false humility, their harsh treatment of the body, but they lack any value in restraining sensual indulgences. I call these the, uh, the CrossFit Christians. <laughs> these are the people that have all these rules. Like, if Jesus goes go this far, we're going to go this far. Like, if you do this, we're going to go extra. We're going we're gonna to beat our bodies. We're just going to make it happen. Like, have you ever heard of a guy named David Goggins? So David Goggins is, yeah, he's... He's an ultra, ultra athlete. He runs like these ultra marathons, like 120 miles in one day. Um, like a lot of running in this sermon, isn't there? Like, <clears throat> David Goggins holds the world record for the most consecutive pull-ups. How many do you think it is? 
to 500. 4,030 pull-ups in 17 hours. Why are you doing that? Because we're in awe, aren't we? Don't you, want to, don't you want us to be in awe of you? Think about it. I wish I had more time to talk about how easily we buy into the idea that we put ourselves on the throne and think, if I'm spectacular, plus Jesus, that's really going to give me the life that God promises me. And it is an astounding thing when we begin to realize it's not Jesus plus anything. It's Jesus who says we belong because we're worthy of being loved. And if we can embrace that, we realize that we are spectacular. And that's the foundation we build our whole lives on. So I have just two questions for you, and then I'm, I'm going to finish. Who sits on the throne of your life? Who are you living to impress? Who is the audience that you're living your life in front of? Who do you worry about when you do certain things? Who are you afraid of disappointing? Who is it that you're convinced that if you can just be what they want you to be, then your life would be so much better? Is it your parents? Is it your peers? Is it the people in this church? Is it yourself? In Colossians, it says, just, then, just as you received Jesus Christ, continue to live in him. How did we receive Christ? I got nothing, but I need you. That's how I came to know Christ. How do I live? I got nothing, but I need you. So two things. One, do you have the courage to actually write down on a piece of paper, this is who sits on, who's judging me? Who's telling me I need to be something more with Jesus? Do you have the courage to do that? Now, let me just give this caveat, because some of you are going to go home, especially if you're a teenager, you're going to go home and tell your parents, see, he said, quit judging me. Get off my back. <laughs> No, 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 hang on, time out, time out, time out. <clears throat> um, there's healthy accountability. If you want to understand that, Matthew chapter 18 talks about the role that we play in one another's lives, and Scripture says you are blind to yourself in many ways, and you need me, and I'm blind and I need you. And there's a difference between me opening up my life and going, will you come in and help me see what I can't see so that I can live out of the truth that I belong to Jesus? That's a very different thing than somebody coming into my life and go, you better be more with Jesus. So with that said, will you acknowledge who it is that sits on that throne? And the second thing is, would you repent that you put them there? Your repentance um, is a funny thing because I like to give a good definition. Repent, repentance is not getting fresh forgiveness. When Jesus went to the cross, he died for all my sins, my past, my present, and my future sins. Because when he was on the cross, all my sins were future. They're all forgiven. You're not going to out-sin his grace. Like, he didn't give you a certain amount, and then in the future, they're all forgiven. So repentance isn't coming back and getting a fresh forgiveness. Repentance is returning to sanity. Repentance is realizing that I've allowed my mind to believe what is not true, and I want to put it down and come back to sanity. 
Acknowledge, put it down. So about 10 years ago, um, I uh, really felt this call from the Lord to go on a prayer retreat. I'd heard about them. I'd read about them. And I was like, okay, I'm going to go on a two-day prayer retreat. And uh, so, you know, I had no idea what I was doing. I was just going to go pray for two days because that sounds like the kind of thing a preacher would do, right? Like, that's, you know, so uh, I had a good friend named Dave Burden who uh, had access to a cabin. And he said, hey, you can use this cabin. And I went there. And I mean, it was like, it was rustic. Like, it was, there's no television. Was there electricity there? Maybe not even electricity, no internet, no nothing. And so I get there, and I just kind of, just no distractions, just me and Jesus. And so I sit down on the couch, and I'm like, okay, Jesus, here we go. Two days of prayer. It's going to be awesome. This is going to be incredible. And so I start praying, about 10 minutes into it, I'm like, get distracted, like, you know, and I'm just like, okay, this, I'm kind of working my way through my prayer list now, and so I get down on my knees, because I got to get more serious now, and I keep praying, I keep praying, and about 10 minutes later, I mean, 20 minutes, and I'm done, I was like, like, it's time to go home, I'm finished, I prayed everything that I needed to pray, and Jesus, aren't you proud of me, and here's what started to happen, the phantom, what a loser, what a loser, you call yourself a pastor. You can't even pray for more than 20 minutes, and you want to give up. Do you know the great men of God in history would pray for weeks on end? And I mean, I'm like, I, the phantom came out and started saying, I'm not even sure you're a Christian, or you should be in ministry. I guess a prayer retreat. Prayer retreat. And then the front door kicked in. And the Holy Spirit came in, and he was on a white horse. No. It's not what happened. Dave Burden came in with a good friend of ours, Jeremy Kelton. And like, hey! And I'm like, dude, what are y'all doing? I'm on a prayer retreat. I am on a prayer retreat. What are you doing up here? Hey, we came to get you. We're going fishing. I said, what? I'm praying. No, no, we're fishing. There's a great stream right down the road here. Come on, come on. Put your Bible away. Let's go fish. I'm on a prayer retreat, all right? They were acting like Satan, all right, coming in and taking me away from the Lord. <laughs> we go fish. We catch unbelievable fish, don't we? We catch a whole bunch of fish. We bring them back, and I go, okay, you guys got to go. No, 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 we're going to cook them. So we cooked fish, and we sat around the table, and we laughed, and we laughed, and we laughed, and we ate a lot of fish. And I looked at them, I said, why did you guys come? We just wanted to be with you. And then they left. And that's when I sat down and I realized that was a gift from the Lord because the Lord said, hey, this whole prayer retreat thing, I just want to be with you because you belong, because you're worthy of my love, because I care about you. It's nothing you do, it's nothing you've done, and it's nothing you're going to be able to do to add or take away from that. And that right there, my friends, is the foundation of our faith. Because if we let that foundation now be the very thing that we build our lives on, let me tell you, we are going to be a dangerous group of people because we'll be the free people in this community. So do you know who sits on that throne? Will you repent and put them down and realize that you are loved and you belong? And then let's create a community. Imagine a community where we look at each other and go, you're here, you're here. 
You belong. Not fit in. You belong. Let me pray. Lord, thank you that nobody fell asleep in this sermon. And I mean that. I mean, I'm sensitive and insecure. And I just thank you that you use sensitive, insecure people. And that you're not asking me to get over all that stuff before I belong. And and loved. And I just thank you for the freedom in that. And I pray for my friends here, Lord. And thank you for this beautiful community and uh, this man that leads it that I love more than my own life. And just thank you for him, Father, and how he has taught me this sermon in many, many ways in my life. And I pray for us that today we would have the courage in this moment uh, to believe that we belong and to drink that in and to celebrate that. And for that to be enough, if not just for this moment. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.